Amen. Please be seated. I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 19 for our passage. This morning we will be looking at verses 30 through 38. As you're doing so, I want to um, just let you know that you can also find this text on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. I also want to again welcome those of you that may be visiting with us. You have joined us in a series as we are walking through the book of Genesis. And verse by verse, passage by passage, we are making our way through this beautiful and wonderful text. Last week, we were in chapter 19 as well. And this section, a very famous section of Scripture, describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those great cities, those cities of great wickedness. And God righteously and in holy anger poured out His judgment upon those cities. And while that passage was difficult to stomach, and many of us breathed a sigh of relief at the end of last Sunday, and then we looked at today's passage and said, oh boy, we do see very clearly God's sin, and God, or God's, forgive me, God's hatred of sin is clearly seen in what took place. And I want us to know, even on the outset of this morning, this passage, where we will be today in looking at verses 30 to 38, is still dealing with the effects of that judgment. Um, there's a reason that we're still in chapter 19, that, that dealing with Lot and his family and his lineage is dealt with after Sodom, because really it's still dealing with the sons of Sodom. And that will become apparent to us this morning. Now, I will be honest with us. This is a tough passage. You got my email this week, I asked for prayer because this is a tough passage. This is highlighted by the fact, and again, in complete honesty, I read no less than a dozen commentaries this week, and four of them skipped it all together. They decided, you know, that's enough of 19, let's move on to 20. But this in and of itself, and the reason that we're here, and the fact that we're preaching chapter 19, verses 30 through 38, teaches us something about God and the importance of God's Word. And it's this, when we consecutively, verse by verse, passage by passage, event by event, story by story, walk through the scriptures in sequential expository preaching, we are forced to face difficult passages. We are forced to face messages. We are forced to face context. We are forced to face matters to which we would want to, wish to, and maybe hope to ignore. But I'll um, let my mentor and uh, former pastor say it, because I thought he said it best. Dr. Ligon Duncan said this, No preacher in their right mind would choose this passage. However, as we walk through a book of the Bible, both the minister and the congregation are confronted with hard truths that at its conclusion should drive our knees in humble prayer before God. And so we will seek to drive our knees in humble prayer before God today as we're confronted with this passage. Because here's another truth of this text. God's Word gives us sobering warnings against sin and sinfulness. And while I recognize that this is a very sobering warning, I appreciate what Paul said to Timothy. All Scripture, not some, not what we may like, not what makes us comfortable, not what we would rather hear, but all, all Scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That we, the people of God, may be complete this day. I ask that you turn with me to God's word as we read of God's judgment upon Lot and his bloodline. Please follow along with me as I begin in verse 30, and I will read to the end of the chapter. Now Lot went up from Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand together. And he has promised us in his word that just as the waters fall from the heavens and give nourishment to the ground, so too does his word go forth and nourish us in that which we need. Would you please bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, while we may not know it, while we may not understand it, we need this text today. By your preordained plan, you have brought it before us this day, this hour, for our spiritual nourishment, for our good, for condemning of sin, and for sanctifying us. And Lord, I ask that your work be done. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you go forth? Would your truth be proclaimed? Would sinners repent? Would those who are weak in their faith be revived? And would those who trust in you come to trust in you all the more this day? Lord, give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Give us a sobering as we approach your text this morning. I pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On the one hand, the scene that just unfolded before us is so unique. It is so unique. We might be tempted to say or think something like this this morning. God in his wisdom placed this story here to warn against getting drunk after cataclysmic events. This is the best way to prevent your daughters from thinking they need to further your bloodline and take steps necessary to do so. And then if we're thinking that, we're going to breathe a sigh of relief, right? Like, whew, thank goodness, I'm most likely not ever going to have to deal with that, and I can just kind of get on auto control for the next 30 minutes, 40, um, and let the pastor do his thing, because it's for a very specific person, a very specific people, in a very specific circumstance. However, I would plea with you to not let that be your thought process this morning. 
I would argue there are significant lessons about sin and its compounding nature that we must walk away from this passage understanding. When we sin, and this goes for all kinds of sin, it has lingering effects upon our lives and the lives of those around us. It's wrong to get in our heads this mindset that that sin is, is specific to us, that it only affects us, that it only really deals with ourselves, and so it's not that bad. Rather, we need to see the rippling effects. This is particularly true for us as parents. Sometimes our sinful decisions will affect not only us, not only our children, but the Scriptures warn for generations to come. And if that does not cause you to take a pause and ask for God's mercy to be upon us, I don't know what will. That being said, I I do want to examine our passage this morning critically. And I want us to see in it two consequences of sin. Two major consequences of sin as well as a cure for it. We see that in our text that sin leads to greater degrees of sin. It has a snowball effect. We also see that if left unchecked, sin is generational in nature. That not only does our sin affect us, but it affects those after us on and on and on. Left unchecked, that is the case. But at the same time, we will examine those, but we have to conclude with that cure. That there is a solution. There is a way to break the cycle. There is a way to break the curse. There is a way to undo that which has been done, and that is by and through repentance. And so we will deal with dire situations this morning. But hang with me, please. Hang with me before we get to the end so that we can get to the point that we find repentance as the cure. With that being said, would you please look with me at our three points this morning, beginning with this idea, this concept that sin leads to greater degrees of sin. And it really is interesting. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, and um, we've been hearing about various people and various figures, and we rightly focus on Abraham as Um, A bulk of this section is dealing with him and with his children after him. But his nephew Lot has come up and he's appeared off and on throughout the text. And here really ends his story, at least directly. We we really conclude the life of Lot and what an anticlimactic finish it is. We can look at um, him and, and briefly consider all that we've noted about Lot and all that's gone on in his life as Abraham takes him away from his family to raise him, to basically safeguard himself. Abraham um, was not able to have children, or Abram was not able to have children with his wife. So they take Lot in case, in case they needed a backup plan. This man could fulfill the bloodline. But then as as Lot grows and and as he matures and he gets to the point um, God has provided for him, he gets so wealthy and so rich that he could not live in the same region as Abraham. Their flocks were were too great. They've been blessed too much. And so God says, or Abraham says, excuse me, Lot, take a pick. Pick the land. Take what you want. You go one direction. I'll go the other. Lot looks around and says, this looks great. I'll take that. So he goes one way and Abraham goes the other. Well, we know that land that he picked was the land of Sodom. And not only does he raise his farm there, but he also raises a family. He raises his family in a wicked city. And if you um, look at Second Peter, Second Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man and that by living in this city, his mere presence in it tormented his soul. 
His, his soul was tormented at the vileness and wickedness of the city. Leads us to a great question. Why didn't you move? If it's so bad, why didn't you move? And we're going to have to linger on that, unfortunately. For Lot didn't move. He raised his family in a city of wickedness. Not only that, and angels of the Lord came to visit Sodom after God's command to examine the city. Lot takes them in, shows them hospitality. All of the men of the village decide they want to take advantage of these angels. They want to abuse them sexually. Lot won't let them. You cannot have them. You cannot have my guests. You cannot have those that I have cared for. And he gets an idea. I've got an idea. Here are my two virgin daughters. Have them instead. That's far better than the sin you're attempting to commit. Bad parenting and sinful response. It's never okay to offer your children as sexual replacements to God's angels. But his story doesn't end there, does it? The angels strike the men of the city. They strike them blind. The angels tell Lot, Lot, anyone that's related to you, you've got to get them out. Judgment is coming upon this city. And then the next morning, judgment day, you would think Lot would be ready. He would be chomping at the bit to get out of the city. But it says, and he lingered. Laziness. Maybe a doubt that God would do what he said he's going to do. Maybe a lack of fear of God. We don't know. But the angels almost literally have to pick him up and carry him out of the city. And even then, the angels say, flee to the hills. And he's like, that's too far. <laughs> Again, laziness. And so he says, please let me go to this village. Let me go to this town. And the angels say, we'll grant it. Just go. Upon leaving, his wife looks back, desiring the sin of the city, the lust of the flesh, over trusting in the Lord. And that's a very abbreviated look at the life of Lot. Small mistakes, small errors, small sins in some way, if you will. But still, a, a, a displayed lack of trust in the Lord. A displayed lack of faith and resting in and upon the Lord. A pattern of selfish behavior. He's not displayed as a great sinner. And actually, again, if you go to Second Peter, he's a mark of righteousness. You look at Lot as a righteous one amidst great sin. However, time and time again, when Lot would have the opportunity to cry out to the Lord, to display great faith, to trust in God to care for his needs, instead he chooses comfort, wealth and gain, or the easiest route possible. And if that's the case for Lot, if that's the circumstance in which he lived his life, don't you think that would have had an effect on his family? In fact, we know the answer to that is yes. His children would grow up under a father who chose that way to live. They would witness this and come to think of it as normal behavior. Proverbs, many of us know this, and some of us have it in our homes. Proverbs 22, chapter 22, verse 6 says this, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we use that as motivation to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But if that is the case, if, if, if that's what the wisdom of the Proverbs teach us, the inverse would also be true, wouldn't it? Train up a child in the wrong way to love oneself and to pursue the desires of the world, and they will carry that with them into adulthood. And what little we know about Lot's daughters, and we, we don't know a lot, is that they do take the sins of their father and expand upon them. And let's look at this 
just for a moment. Look at our text. One of the first things that, that strikes us or should strike us, they're not even named. They're Lot's daughters. They're not given a title. They're, they're not mentioned by name. And this text is making a point here. It's making a point, these people are significant. These ladies are significant. But they're significant because of their actions, not so much because of who they are. There's an emphasis placed on what they chose to do, how they chose to live. And that's sad in and of itself. We also know that these daughters have witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They know Lot should have told them. We would assume Lot told his family about the judgment to come and that the need to flee. They've lost their betrothed husbands. They've lost their mother. And now they're living as refugees. And all of that builds up to this conversation. The older says to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, we're not sure if they were afraid that Lot's bloodline would not be continued and that they had this like twisted righteous mindset going on here. Like, our father needs children. He needs men to carry the bloodline and there's no one left to do it but us. We don't know if they wrongly assumed that the entire earth was judged. They saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Could they have in their mind said, there are no men left. Here we are in, in kind of a, a restart, um, kind of like with Noah and the flood, and it's up to us to fix this problem. Those are looking at it kind of nobly. But whatever the cause, whatever the circumstances, they decide their only hope so whether it was noble or not, the only solution is we must trick our father in sin so that he will impregnate us. And we see just that. Two nights in a row, they get him drunk enough that he could not remember what was happening. And I'll, I'll talk about drunkenness again in a moment. But, but those of you that um, either have had alcohol in your past or know people with alcohol um, or have drank heavy alcohol... Um, this is a significant amount of alcohol. This is not um, someone going out for drinks with their friends. This is, this is blackout drunk. And those of you in the medical profession know this is very dangerous behavior here. This is, this is very um, severe um, drunkenness. Twice, twice in a row, two nights in a row, they get him drunk enough he cannot remember what is going on before him. And then the text says, not only did they get him drunk, but the older and then, night two, the younger, sexually assaulted their father, committing both incest and rape. Now, the Bible is very clear on these matters. Drunkenness is a sin. This tells us not only is drunkenness a sin, but it tells us why it is warned against in Scripture. Drunkenness leaves room for greater degrees of sin. It removes the ability to think critically and removes the ability to have rational conclusions. There's a reason there's jokes about having beer goggles on. There's a reason there's a joke about people saying things that when they're drunk that they wouldn't when they were sober. Um, this, is, this is mocked in our culture today. It takes away 
your, your conscience, if you will, and, and, and really places you in a place of making poor decisions. Now, let me be clear here. I am not excusing the daughters of Lot. I'm not saying that the environment they grew up in is completely to blame. Nor am I saying Lot is completely innocent here. Because while they encouraged him to drink, he drank. And why would they make these decisions if they had not been parented in such a way? Well, how could they come to such conclusions if their father had not raised them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Had he done so, would they think this is the right conclusion? But let's call sin, sin. Lot sinned. The daughters sinned. They chose to carry it out in a gross and heinous way. And do we see here how sin grows in the greater and greater degrees of depravity? Lot lets his daughters get him blackout drunk. The older daughter sleeps with the father and becomes pregnant. The older daughter convinces the younger daughter to do the same thing. The daughters a second time convince Lot to become blackout drunk. And then the second time a daughter gets pregnant through her father. Well, I pray the context of this passage is foreign to us. I ask that it warn us against the dangers of allowing sin free reign in our lives. Again, would Lot's daughters have come to this conclusion had they been raised in a household and an environment where godliness was promoted? If Lot took seriously the warnings against drunkenness, would he have unwittingly committed this great sin twice? And then I ask us today, are any of us keeping sins as pet projects or as great acts of comfort? And could they, if left unchecked, snowball into great sin? Here's a few areas that maybe we should check our hearts. Are you being careful of what you watch on TV, see on social media, or listen to in music? Are we teaching our children how to respond biblically when things don't go our way? Are we warning our kids that the world is going to promote these things as good and preparing them to answer faithfully when they arise? Or maybe we're teaching our children to respond in anger when the situation warrants it instead of falling on our knees and asking for God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, looking at this passage, there's one thing that's abundantly clear. We must protect our families. We must not let sin go unchecked. And this goes doubly so for us as parents. Sin can have dire consequences. And it can be carried to further and further generations. Sin is compounding in nature. Sin doesn't leave itself alone. Those minor sins, given time, given the opportunity to grow, grow, given the right circumstances, will evolve and evolve and evolve in a greater and greater and greater degrees. And Scripture does warn us that if left unchecked, it can become a generational marker. We see this as the second point this morning. And really, to, to get this, the weight of this, we need to go to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. These commandments, the Ten Commandments, are given by God to help govern the behavior of the people of Israel. Now, they're not an exhaustive list in and of themselves, but rather they give categories by which we should seek to conduct our lives. 
And if you want a good discussion of this, if you want to think about this further, I would love to point your attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith larger catechism. The larger catechism. The shorter does a good job of summarizing the Ten Commandments. The larger then goes into what each command says we must do and what each command says we mustn't do. It's a wonderful study. I commend it to you. But that being said, I want to point your attention to a particular commandment. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we go back in our study of Genesis, all the way back near the beginning um, to the bloodline of a man named Cain. We see this on display Remember, Cain is well known for his sin of murdering his brother, even though the Lord directly warned him not to do so. And just a few generations later, we get in that next chapter, we get a story of the bloodline of Cain, and we come upon a man named Lamech. And what is it said of Lamech? Lamech is one who not only carries out murder just like his forefather, but he does so boastfully, and it takes it to the point of, Am I not greater than Cain? And he's meaning, do I not sin greater than my forefather? Sin can be generational in nature. It can have lingering effects. It can last season after season, generation after generation, if it goes unchecked. And and remember that. I'm going to get back to that in just a second. But back to our own text, we see this. We will see this take place. We see the sin here take place place in Lot's life and in the life of his daughters. Lot acted unwisely and fathered two daughters who fathered two sons. And the older daughter has a son who our scriptures tell us is named Moab, who is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the other daughter would father Ben-Ami, who is the father of the Ammonites. To this day. And these two nations, if you know anything about the Moabites and the Ammonites, they are people who caused great trouble for Israel. They were in great conflict through much of the Old Testament, warring against them, threatening them with violence. We can look at a few places of Scripture to see this. Um, Numbers uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, has this line. Israel began to whore after the daughters of Moab and sacrificed to their gods. So several generations later, the people of Moab are enticing the people of Israel. They are enticing them with their daughters to to take them sexually, to act in ungodly ways, to worship their gods, to turn their back on Yahweh. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 4, forbids the people of Israel from letting any Ammonite or Moabite from entering the assembly of God. And this one's interesting. Do not let any of the Ammonites or Moabites enter the assembly of the Lord, for they did not show hospitality to those fleeing Egypt and instead hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. 
So when the people of Israel are fleeing during the Exodus, they're looking for refuge, they're looking for safety. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, instead of helping them, hire a prophet to curse them. Now that's interesting in and of itself, because what did we read last week? What does Ezekiel say about the sin of Sodom? What is, what is the true sin of Sodom? They refused to show hospitality to those who were in need. And so here we are a few generations later, through the bloodline of Lot, same situation, a refusal to show hospitality to those who were in need. That's the great sin of these people. Well, if that doesn't make the case, then all we have to do is turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 warns the people of Israel about the worship of a false god named Molech. Molech, a false god promoted by the Ammonites. What is Molech famous for? Molech is a false god who required of its followers regular child sacrifice. And the people of Israel were tempted to follow the worship of this god. And so just a few generations later, through the Moabites, through the Ammonites, we have false worship. We have a refusal to help those in need, a selfishness. We have a cursing of the people of God. We have not only false worship, but abominable worship such as human sacrifice. Over time, the sins of Lot fed into his children, which fed into their children, and fed into their children to the point that there's not much resemblance left of Yahweh there, is it? We have to go all the way to the prophet Amos to read the prophecies of the destructions of these nations, that their sins against the Lord had become complete, and that their destruction would come, which takes place somewhere around 1,000 to 1,200 years after his death. And so Lot sinned, his daughters sinned, and then 1,200 years of false worship, false practice, antagonism against the people of God took place before we get a prophecy of the destruction of those people. Let this warn us today that we must fear sin we must fear sin not only for our own sake, but for those around us, particularly for our children. We should desire that our children walk with the Lord. We should provide examples for them of what that should look like. May we seek to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. May we pray for their salvation and for their children's salvation, trusting that God can bring beauty even out of great acts of sadness. May we not neglect this parents. May we not neglect this church. Even if you do not have children or grandchildren, if you are here, you're part of the church. Look around. We got a bunch of them. Pray for them. Pick one. Pick all of them. It is your duty as the church. We owe it to this next generation to pray for their souls. We owe it to humble ourselves before God and say, may it not be said of us, may our name not be a curse word, may our name not be tied to, oh, those sodomites. Even to this day, that's a, that's a swear word. Oh, may it not be said of us, oh, those Moabites, oh, those Ammonites. Now, I told you I would end with hope, <laughs> with repentance, and God's great mercy. And I appreciate you hanging in with me to this point. Because it is here. But one more time, let me just say, it is abundantly clear the decisions made in our text were great acts of wickedness. 
the daughters acted sinfully in getting their father's father drunk. Proverbs 23.20, Isaiah 5.11, Galatians 5.19-21, and Ephesians 5.18 all forbid drunkenness and call it a sin. The daughters acted sinfully in committing both incest and rape. And may we not call it anything else. It is wrong to soften the text in any way other than to call it what it is. These actions are condemned in Scripture in passages such as Leviticus 18, 6 through 7, Deuteronomy 27, 20, and Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and it could have gone on and on. I just stopped at four. We think of the hardship and of the pain that these decisions caused later generations as the people of Israel were constantly at war with the Moabites and the Ammonites. But at the same time, according to God's divine plan and His mercy, there was good to come out of it. I know it may be hard to consider this, uh, but look with me. Flip real quick to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Story of redemption of a woman named Ruth. Through a series of events, her mother-in-law, Naomi, is left fatherless and, or is left husbandless. Ruth is left husbandless and fatherless. They're in Moab. And Naomi, please go. Please leave. He's, she's telling her daughters, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. I, I, you cannot stay with me. Go home. And Ruth, the Moabite, says this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, capital G there, God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, capital L, Lord, do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Words from the mouth of a Moabite. Now this is significant for two reasons. Here we have a Moabite who submits herself to the God of her mother-in-law, Yahweh. Naomi worships Yahweh, and so Ruth worships Yahweh. She says, death is going to be the only thing to take me away from you and away from your God. I will not have it. Where you're going, I'm going. Who you're worshiping, I'm worshiping. You're mine, and I'm yours. She breaks a cycle of Moabites who worship false gods and false practices and instead clings to the one true Savior. And because of this, very cool, we have the second point. Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. One of the two genealogies of Jesus Christ. Ruth ends up marrying a man. His name is Boaz. And through their marriage and through their faith in Yahweh, they have a son. This son is named Obed. May not ring a bell to you. But Obed, we know, fathered Jesse. Again, not a very big household name. But Jesse fathers a man named David. 
here we are in Matthew's genealogy, the bloodline of Jesus Christ, and what do we read? Look down at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then on we go to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Ruth, a Moabite woman, born because of the mighty, wicked, heinous sin of her ancestors, becomes integral in the bloodline of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must feel the weight of this passage. If you leave and you don't feel gross for the sake of sin, I've not done my job this morning, and I've probably done it too well. I've probably leaned a little too heavy on that. And while that is 100% true, you cannot leave without hearing this. Even so, there's forgiveness, there's repentance, and there's salvation. Why? Because Ruth trusted in God. She turned to Him. She rested in Him. Not Molech, not the false gods, not the peoples of Moab, not through the Ammonites, but in Yahweh. The bloodline from Adam to Christ could not have been completed had it not been for a Moabite woman. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude this morning from quoting from one, not from Lot's bloodline, but from Abraham. Several generations later, will come to a man by the name of Joseph. His story covers the third section of this book. Joseph, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He gets mistreated. He gets accused of sexual misconduct. He gets thrown in prison and forgotten. And yet by the end of his life, he becomes the second greatest man in Egypt, only under the Pharaoh himself. And he ends up saving the very family that pushed him into the pit in the first place. At the end of his life, toward the end of his recorded account, the brothers come terrified. What's he going to do to us? What's going to happen? Will he kill us? Will he have us murdered? He says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. The daughters of Lot sinned wickedly, and yet just like Joseph proclaims, that which they did for evil, God used for good. May we heed the warnings here from our text, and let us praise God that he draws repentant sinners unto himself, no matter their background, no matter their sin, no matter their condition. He beckons us all to come. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is a heavy weight about this passage. It is hard to read of these events, to consider them, and and just the degrees of wickedness that are displayed here. Lord, it is challenging to hear these words this morning, and yet at the same time, may we feel their weight. If only 
because it drives us to you and drives us to our need for a Savior and for a need of forgiveness. Lord, would we trust in the God of Ruth, a Moabite, one born because of great sin and vile acts. But may our confession and profession echo hers. I will trust in your God. I will rest in him. He will be my God and I will be of his people. Lord, forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. Help us, Lord, to humbly repent, confess our sins, and place our trust in you, a God who can bring beauty out of even such wicked acts as this. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.